built the business and we hired lots of people and we got to, I don't know, 45 people. But what we realized is that Wayne and I were front and center of everything and our team was all around us, but it meant that we couldn't really scale. It meant that if I stepped back from the business, the business wouldn't function. This is My Product Tested, the show that unpacks how successful founders have tested their way to the top and all the market validation that happened along the way. In studio, as always, from the Hype team, Miles Urfak and Cameron Calder, and here in studio this week, Paul Devine, founder of the call tracking software Logimeet. Paul's founding team has spent the last 12 years building a product that's increasing businesses' revenue by having trackable phone calls and form submissions, all in one easy-to-use, plug-and-play solution. Paul, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Cam. Nice to be here. Yeah, welcome, so, Paul. so Paul, you, you're just over 12 years in. Um, you know, you're solving an amazing problem that's, you know, as we said before the recording, we know all too well. Um, and we can see there's a, a huge need for this. Um, but for the listeners today, what is Logimeter? Well, we tried, you know, everybody tries to do this elevator pitch and we spent, we spent years trying to figure out an elevator pitch that didn't require us to have a building that was 100 stories tall. But uh, we ended up saying, <laughs> we ended up with this notion, which is unlocking the potential in, in your business conversation. So Logimeter effectively provides tools that enable businesses to unlock the potential in the calls going into and out of their business. And if you think about it, every single day, businesses have calls. And and those those calls are either sales inquiries, customer inquiries, complaints. They're, they're, they've got teams trying to actually make sales or service customers or order stuff. And because it's a call, it's generally perceived to be unstructured, untrackable, unmanageable, and we don't feel that that's the case. So what Logimeter does is it says we will help you to understand the potential that lies within your inbound and outbound calls and to try and help you unlock the value that's sitting there by taking something that's historically been unstructured and making it structured. That's that's what Logimeter Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, we're very surprised meeting sales teams and you know lead generation companies that don't have something like this in place Um, and kind of using purely lead submissions in excel sheets and getting lost leads and not actually proving their proper return on investment right Uh, and like we work a lot with auto industry and the auto industry historically you know they if you think about a, a, a car dealership they would advertise their stock on their website, they'd advertise their stock on cars.coza, on Autotrader. And historically what would happen is that the if they had a pretty good lead management system or CRM system, the lead would come in, it would be assigned to CAM, and then they'd hope that CAM would call it back in a, in a good time and do a good job on that call. But that's that was the end of the automation. And obviously when you leave things to chance, um, 
you, you introduce risk into the process. So what we did was for the, for the dealer market, the lead now comes in, gets assigned to CAM, which is exactly as it was before, um, but then Cam, CAM's phone rings. And then Cam picks up the phone and, and, and it actually reads him the details. It said, Paul Devine is interested in the Audi A5 or whatever it might be. To speak to Paul, just press one. And then Cam presses one. It connects Cam to Paul. And we're having a conversation within two minutes of Paul submitting that inquiry on Order Trader. And what happens, if you think about it, is that automation uh, means that I'm catching Cam when he's still in a shopping mindset where he's still available. And then what happens is your conversions go up. The minute, uh, the minute that goes to chance again, back to the old school, Cam might be busy. Cam almost certainly hasn't just done one inquiry. He's probably gone on cars.coza, gone on to order trader, gone on to others, submitted multiple inquiries. And then whoever gets to Cam first has got that first mover advantage. And so what we're trying to do and what we've done in the order, order industry, as I sort of said, was we've, we've automated this process now. And I think about, I'm, I'm thumb sucking, but about 40% of the franchise dealers now use that solution to follow up. And I kind of like it as well because I think the customer experience is excellent. And I think like we as buyers, we, we, we respect and like it when people treat us like that. So I feel it's kind of cool from both sides. We're improving the customer experience, but we're also helping our customers convert more leads in the meantime. So it's a mm. nice little product. Yeah, Paul, that's incredible. And, you know, 12 years later down the line, uh, you now have this amazing tool that is you know, closing the loop and increasing those conversions for, mm -hmm. for those types of businesses. Uh, you've got, and it's an amazing tracking tool where you're tracking your inbound and outbound uh, business conversations. But what was that original problem that you were trying to solve 12 years Great ago? Question. Great question. It was, it was actually print advertising. So when we first started, the actual original company's name was AdMeter. And uh, wow. it was simply to track ads. And if you think about it, back, back 12 years ago, digital was in its infancy and print was very, there was a lot of money going into print. And mm. if, you, if you look at the, the, the strategy that was being employed in print, it was a one number strategy. In other words, you'd put your, your contact number in the, the same contact number in every ad that you did. So the only way in the old days that you were able to track where those calls were coming from was that you trained your receptionist to say, where did you find our number? And they had to make a note in the book. And it was so flawed. And, and that was how it was. So what we did was we just went to anybody that was um, uh, doing extensive print advertising. And when I say print, I'm obviously talking about newspapers, door drops, uh, all those sorts of things and, and um, billboards. And just saying, guys, you've got, to, you've got to understand where you're getting your best return. So we gave them unique numbers that they inserted into each media, and then they were able to track the calls. There was huge, there was huge um, resistance, though, because back in the day, uh, people considered their telephone number part of their brand. Yeah. So they, they didn't want to change it. But eventually, eventually they saw the wisdom and, uh, and did so. Yeah. I, would, I wouldn't say back in the day, because we're still experiencing it today. There's a, you know, so many businesses have a, a jingle behind their, their phone numbers and it's part of their branding. You know, they have, I mean, businesses that we work with 
and they suddenly because um as we know google ads also uses uh tracking numbers um yeah. and when they arrive on a dynamically changing tracking number on a landing page send a screenshot going this is the wrong phone number this yeah. is not allowed without branding yeah. Please, yeah. please change this as soon as possible um but yeah i'm uh, i'm interested to kind of hear about your background paul um you know being in crm um software uh understanding the sales pipeline and then kind of i would imagine going through these big companies and seeing that there's this discrepancy between tracking the actual conversions of these sales how has that kind of past experience that you've had over the years and the companies that you've worked with influenced the product that you started building 12 years ago so i actually worked my 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 first job was in a below the line advertising agency and um and and i realized then that they weren't tracking no one was tracking the the response to their prints and we they back in the these these really antiquated um counting devices that you'd plug into your phone and it would do a count a manual count as 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 the calls came in but you had no data around it. so I, I, back in the, I, you know i clocked something wasn't quite right there and but i didn't know what the solution was i had no idea what that solution what, that there was something out there that would solve the problem so the first thing was to just understand i was able to speak the language around uh, advertising mix about below the line advertising about the print cycles i i i understood the sort of vernacular the business was the first the first thing and then the dot com boom came along and i was fortunate enough to be um headhunted by an american company and they and they asked me to run their um uk division a company was called into.com and uh, and i put together a big digital team and i got to understand the sort of digital landscape and and when uh and this this business now is really a marriage of those two things it was understanding the the print uh, world and the print challenges and the advertising challenges and the ROI arguments and then the technology side was understanding how technology could potentially um and enhance you know be you could automate that that need so and i got comfortable with technology so much so where you know i can talk to a developer comfortably or you know the all the roles inside a, 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 de a development team it's not an easy thing to understand their world and their pain and that that experience gave me that confidence to uh to to bridge those two worlds so and and just in terms of the founder story i i actually and I, and i think it's important your 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 listeners or viewers um uh hear this i i my first i i was a high flying exec in a in a in a in that sort of american corporate you know had the car had the had the dream house in london had the lovely bank balance and and i and i and i decided that i was bulletproof and i could set up my own business and uh, i made a terrible mistake which was that i had no idea but i just had a complete belief that i could i could be successful and uh, and and i said to my wife i've got a you know we had a young our first young child at the time and i said i'm i'm sold my soul to these americans <laughs> a work life balance that works for me god what it what it i know <laughs> but, and uh, and and uh, and and i said uh, I, i need to find a business that will work and i'm going to 
bring all those experiences together. And I spent the next two years literally uh, uh, funding a business out of savings, earning no money, two years, and, and living the normal life. So that means all the household expenses, the baby expenses, the car expenses, plus I would, I'd commissioned this software, which was just this idea that I had. And I had no, I had no clients, I had no, I just had a belief. And I spent two years and basically all our hard words, hard word, uh, hard earned, uh, uh, hard earned earnings just went down the tube and I failed mm. miserably. And, uh, and, and cause I had, I had no idea. I just had this ridiculous belief. And actually I remember my wife coming to me and saying, uh, Paul, I, I, you've got to give up now. You've, you've literally, we've got no money left. And, and that's the hardest thing I think for any, uh, entrepreneur who's running a failing venture is to know when to stop. It's very, very hard because you have to walk away from something that you've just invested everything in. And uh, and I, I, I needed my wife to tell me. And that's how actually I ended up in South Africa. So I, we, in, in my head, to convalesce. And I said to my folks and my family, I'm going over for three months and, and just to, you know, to try and regroup and figure out my next steps, and that was, and that was uh, 18 years ago. <laughs> so my mum, my mum kept ringing me. So when are you coming back? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway, so that was 18 years ago, supposed to be a three month. And then I, and and what was amazing was I, I actually took the source code that we developed over in the UK and brought it here, and took it to a few people. And it actually wasn't Logimeter. It was the one that preceded that. But I got to understand South Africans, I understand South African culture, understand the dynamism here. And that the risk appetite in South Africa is much, much higher than the risk appetite in, in the UK. And people people prepared to give you a crack, you know. And uh, And that was, anyway, so that was where I did that journey. And then I, uh, I, I managed to exit. Uh, with a reasonable amount of money. But coming to the, the actual point, what I learned from that whole experience is rather try, if you're going to start a technology business, try and license software to prove your concept. Try and license from somebody else who's doing it well and then just do the you know minimum viable product, minimal viable investment, and then test it because you don't have to throw the kitchen sink at it. And that was what I did. That was what that whole experience taught me. So when I started Logimeter 12 years ago, I licensed software to help me do it in the first place, just to test the market. And then we built from there. So it's all that you said, Cam. It was like, I, I, I married the two worlds and I understand the business problem. But the second time I started a business, I made sure that I minimized the risk. That was the financial risk of putting, of putting it all together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, so often you see, you know, uh, new founders or first-time founders, they have the secure job and, you know, everyone's uh, so excited about this new potential opportunity. And, you know, because you've thought it over for so long, even though it's just an idea, the excitement outweighs the actual reality. Right. Um, and uh, there's almost uh, some beauty in the fact that, you know, you have this huge ego that just gets humbled so very quickly. Right. And, you know, you need everything stripped away from you, cash, network, 
you know, the actual tech that you have for you to realize, you know, what problem you're actually solving and you then rebuild again because you've, you've basically stripped away everything. And, you know, I think that's the, the beauty behind it is that once you strip away everything, you realize what is the actual importance behind the product and, you know, what is the actual core problem that I'm solving? Right. And then you start over. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear more about, you know, you spoke about licensing um, other tech to, to start this, this MVP. Um, what, what did the MVP look like um, way back then? Is it something you, you're a bit embarrassed about? Is it something that, you know, you, you're always excited about or when you look back now? Well, I, I'm, actually, it was a hedge. I, all, if I look back, I didn't know it would work. I didn't know because we, we talked earlier about the barrier around people's numbers and the brand. And, and I didn't know whether people were going to be prepared. I didn't also know how to price it. And, and I, I just didn't know what the appetite would be. So I actually started two businesses at the same time. And this was just one. And I, because I was starting two at the same time, I needed to, uh, I, I wanted to make sure that the cost was super low. So what I did was I found a company in in the uk and and uh in fact my brother to give my brother credit my, my brother contacted me and said i've just he was he was working in an advertising agency as well and he contacted me and he said oh i've just had a a demonstration from a company called admeter and i think you should have a look at it it kind of addresses some of the things we've been talking about over the years so i thought well there's no harm and i contacted this guy and i said to the, the, the admeter guy and i said look i'm if I bring it over to South Africa, all I need is the, the, the dashboard that you use to display the data. I'll build the back end, but um, let's, can I license your software? And, and again, because of all the things we've been talking about, I wanted to make sure the cost was so low. So all I did was I, I, I agreed a, a royalty with him that was no upfront, no nothing. All I had to do was to pay per number that I processed through the system. So it gave me, a, that was my direct cost. And then I could build on top of that direct cost. So we branded it over for, for over here, created a, a specific uh, data set for over here. And then what I had to build on the back end was the whole sort of switch, the telephony side. And I, I frankly, as I said, uh, all I knew in the past was that there was these little counting machines. I had no idea how telephony works. I went to Telcom and I went to Neotel and I went to all these people and just knocked on their door and said, look, what I need is real time CDRs. Once someone calls you, call, de call detail records, I need real time call detail records so that I can post them back to the UK and we can start displaying data. And Telcom couldn't do it and Neotel couldn't do it. And then the first person that was able to do it was Vox, Vox Telecom. And I was introduced to the world of a world of VoIP, and um, and we built the uh, and then I, 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 the first one, yeah, the first switch you said it was a bit embarrassed. Yeah, I mean this thing was sort of held together by by band aids, you know? duct tape. Yeah, duct tape. It was it was cheap and nasty, but it worked, and it gave us the ability to test the market at a very very low cost. Though, so I had the the, the cost per number licensing model with these people in the UK back then. And then I had the, uh, I had this, you know, as you say, the duct tape sort of system on this side. And then I just had to go and, uh, and, and I did the normal thing that I'm sure we've all done, which is just, you know, sit in the basement and just hit the phones 
and just try and get somebody to listen to the story until they listen. I remember my first customer, I was in Cape Town. My first customer was in Joburg. They bought the number from me and uh, it was it cost them a 150 rand a month for this number, right? And I had to fly there, <laughs> fly back to get the agreement. The costs were ridiculous. But you know, you know, you know what you have to do because you have to prove the model. So, and you know how these things work. You have to, you actually have to spend a lot of money first to actually get the customer base. But then people start talking, and hopefully, eventually, the revenues exceed the costs that are involved. But anyway, yeah. So that was the story. That's how. It, so we we tested it at super low costs. I got, I found the right partner in Vox. I had to find someone to build the the switch, which does the. The, the, the technology, the core, the core technology behind the dashboard, and then, as I say, I licensed the, the, the original dashboard from the UK. Yeah, and so, uh, you go for it, man. So, Paul, uh, just after you you launched that sort of minimum, that metrics you looking to looking at to prove market validation? Yeah, I I, I wanted well. Market validation for me was, in all honesty, is are you are you earning enough to live? That was that was my market validation in the first place. I, I, I'd be lying if I said it was anything else because, for me, I I needed an income, and I needed to make sure that my costs were 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 were, um, were less than the income, and and that was the only validation I wanted to start off with. Once you've got the luxury of earning enough money to you know to live then you look at different metrics then you look at how what do i want this business to be what how do i position it and just as an aside i know you haven't asked the question but that was why we switched it the name from ad meter to logi meter because i didn't want this business to be associated with ads it's not it's actually about adding structure to something that's historically unstructured which is voice communication inbound and outbound so that was why we shifted away from the ad meter model to a logi meter which was uh, we just wanted some form of continuity and yeah and that and that's the story but miles honestly the original metrics were just where can i where can how can we how can we get enough money to survive and what market will benefit most from these so we tried a lot of markets mm -hmm. and you, you guys you guys are, are in this, you know, you're in the advertising space and you're in the sort of lead gen space. And you'd think, I, I, you, you'd be amazed where I went to start off with. I thought all the insurance companies would really like this because they spend a lot on print, right? But no, nobody wanted it. And I think, to be fair to the insurance companies, they've always been a little bit more sophisticated than most other direct, direct marketers. So I think they already had technology that was more advanced than the rest of the market. I then went to advertising agencies because I knew the world and I knew the and I think they saw it a bit too much as an audit tool and they weren't overly keen on the idea. <laughs> so that, that was back in the day. So we didn't yeah. really make any traction there. Where we actually got traction in the end was property. Um, actually, uh, like, but not wasn't um, in the it wasn't like your uh, your Seifs and your Pam Goldings. It was actually the commercial property. So your likes of Orcor. And your likes of yeah, that Raoul Levitt organization, I forget which one it mm -hmm. was, but he, he, they spent a great deal on and print advertising and didn't know where they got the returns. So we, we got a significant footprint in there. 
and we got a significant footprint in the auto mm. industry. Those guys, if you think about auto industry, each dealership really, the sales manager is almost like the marketing manager. And these guys just don't, they're not that sophisticated in terms of marketers. They certainly weren't then. So they really knew that they that they, they didn't understand what their marketing mix, what, what was working for them. Mm. And so those guys, we found really fertile ground in, in, in yeah. auto. Uh, uh, yeah, but the metrics, Mars, honestly, was money. And then eventually it was what sector is best going to benefit. And then once you've identified your sector that's best going to benefit, then you, you go deep and wide as in, in, mm. in the sector. Yeah, I, it's so I, interesting hearing about, uh, you know, that sort of journey of, uh, you know, seeking out that market validation and finding your, your product market fit. Um, and as you say, in your case, it was sort of auto traders and, and platforms like that. Yeah. Um, what was that sort of period like, uh, that early adoption period like, and how much educating did you have to do before you sort of sort of found that serious momentum? Huge amounts of educating. We, we, mm. I, I, I don't know if this is actually a phrase, but I used to f call it missionary selling because you had to convert people before they buy. And, uh, and, and knocking and, on their door, and it still it was still the case because it's an unusual way of thinking. And this, so we had to, and even now, guys, I have to tell you that I, I've tried every form of marketing, and I've tried, uh, I've made, I'm probably not as sophisticated as you guys do, I don't really understand your model fully, but I'm looking forward to learn, mm. uh, learn about it. But but um, we tried everything, and the most successful form of selling that we've still got, believe it or not, is cold calling, speaking to the right person, educating them, and then and then and and then getting them to buy. It still requires a conversation. So that was that that's that was the that was the what we we learned. It, it, it was about how do we how do we educate these people. And maybe mm. things like road shows and breakfasts and things like that would work in future, you know. Maybe, but why? Why would they pitch? You know, I, I still, I still, I still think, uh, I still think the cold call for us is the way. Yeah, mm. I guess that's that's kind of what you're doing over time. Is you know, when you first start, you you're testing an initial idea, and then you you're finding the market fit, and then you're working out what sort of growth testing strategy works and. You know, as you say, you've tested everything, just like you've tested all the verticals that could possibly work for the product. And, you know, then you start releasing features based on that, and then you can update your product. And, you know, there's a, a big thing that we're not speaking about is time. You know, there's we back in 2009, yeah. where print is, you know, I've worked in uh, big sort of advertising traditional agencies where these guys are spending 80% of their budget on above the line. And... You know, there's all, all of this print media that they're doing is slowly evolving to these marketing managers that are going, I have to be on digital. They don't know what they're going to do on digital or why they're on digital, but they're going, I have to switch my budget around. Um, and that sort of pendulum effects turns a nice evolution of your business into, you know, where do we go from here? What did that look like back then? And, uh, you know, when did you realize, you know, there's some sort of evolution happening here where, people have a shift in mindset and, you know, maybe the product needs to adapt to that. Well, we, we, we noticed, 
I, I, I can't remember the times. I wish I was better on years, but I, I, I remember basically when Google started to get really, really strong. Effectively, what you guys will, will know this is that people used to source most of their um, sort of, let's think about you buying a product from, uh, for your home. The place you'd normally go to was the Yellow Pages. And you'd go to Yellow Pages and you'd source your, your whatever it was, your plumber, your electrician, your gardener, whatever it was, you, you'd source it there. And, and we actually have, uh, we've had long-term relationships with Yellow Pages and tracking their advertisers on their behalf. So we had access to data that showed us the trends that were happening when, when, when people started, to, those usage data started to decline. And what happened was that the digital people just started to use Google. They just said, okay, well, Google, you know, I think actually what triggered it, um, Cam, was that I think mobile phone penetration, smartphone penetration changed. With smartphone penetration change and becoming more accessible for the whole of South Africa, people started to search differently because Google was, as you know, is half-baked onto every phone. And then people just started to search and they used Google and and, they, and and once, so we saw it, the traditional print moving, you know, going down, declining. And then we saw digital search going up and we thought, right, we better make a, a value proposition that works in this, in this context. And there were two things that we looked at really was how do you track digital, but how do you also track the conversation? There's one thing saying where your call came from. There's another thing, which is how well was that call managed once it hit your business? And that we spend a lot more time on now, which is how how is that call being managed in your business? How well has that person? What are your conversions like? What's 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 holding that up? So I, I think I hope I've answered the question. But we basically we saw we saw the shift away from print into digital, and then we thought right, digital. You've, you've basically got Google. I don't know what you, your stats show, but. I think Google probably accounts and Facebook now account for about 80% of all searches these days. So you, 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 your, your landscape has become less, it's, it's become less fragmented. It's really sort of consolidated. So if you've got a consolidated landscape, we realized that the tracking requirements were declining. So we had to go deeper into the, into the, com, into the lead cycle and in, into the conversions. So that was the, you know, using the lovely phrase, the pivot that we had to make uh, in our business to go from sort of purely tracking into more tracking analytics and conversions. That, that, that's what we did. Yeah. And I mean, you, uh, all of these new products and features and releases, and you spoke about, you know, licensing and then actually the development, there's, in order for you to build a, a proper product and, you know, a, a really strong company, there needs to be a strong team behind that. Right. What is, what does the team mean to you and, you know, having the right fit there? Everything. I think I, I'm going to answer that on two levels. Uh, the first was I never wanted to be on my own again in terms of like I, that first mistake. I did it all on my own and I, and I realized I didn't know, I didn't know anything, <laughs> let alone everything. I didn't know anything. And uh, so what, the, the, what I did when I landed here um, was I wanted, I put a almost like um, a panel of experts together who, who, who would become my brain's trust. So they weren't, they weren't people who worked within the business, but they were like a board for me. So I, I took early investors 
um, and, uh, and probably more than the, a company of my size should have done. But, but it was because I wanted to kind of recruit really clever people to be my sounding board. So, mm. uh, and, and now I, I'm, I'm really, really pleased. They're still on my board today. We've been on the journey together. They all have their own jobs and, and lives. But I think that, that, that the expertise that they brought and the, and the objectivity that they brought and the counsel that they brought to me was invaluable. So that's for number one. That's a team, but not in within the business, outside of the business, but kind of related. And then the second thing was that I think for me, it was really important. I got a trusted partner early in the business, someone who 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 I could build the business with. So we I got probably way before game, most businesses would do it. I, I took on a CFO and I think we were only probably I, I like 10 people, nine people, you know, a CFO for a nine people business seems a bit, bit, a bit much. And he was a very expensive resource, but I knew that we needed the right, we, I needed the right partner. I'm more on the creative side, more on the sales side, more on the sort of engagement side. And I needed someone who could kind of do that CFO, COO role and build good foundations for the business. And so I found uh, a person, Wayne Powell, actually, and he joined me, I don't know, eight years ago or something. Oh, I actually don't know the time frame. And together we built it. So it, it, it was a solid foundation. You've heard this, I'm sure every single person you've ever talked to has probably said the same thing. Get yourself a solid foundation to, to grow from. And the good team is your solid foundation. And then the rest kind of builds from there. So, yeah, I got that. So my team means everything. And then... And just, it's quite, I don't know if this is interesting, but only recently, so we, so we built, built the business, the business and, we and we hired lots, lots of, people of people and we got, we got to, to, I don't know, 45, 45 people. people. But what but we realized is that Wayne, Wayne and I were front and center of everything. And, and our team was all was around, around us, but it but meant, meant that, that we couldn't really scale. It meant that if I step back from the business, the business wouldn't function. And I think this is the next part that I'm learning now, is that the business has to go through investment cycles where you bring in new management teams and you almost have to and that takes a long time so we've hired a we've just hired four senior managers once they just in the last two years and to to provide the next foundation for the growth because you can't do it with just the original founders you can only take a business so far so i think just to answer the question i think the team is everything the right team is everything but the team needs to evolve as the business evolved. So first was my sort of brains trust as a board level. Second was a, 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 a proper partner within the business. And then the third phase was now expanding the management team. So that the idea if I need to step back that the business can 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 thrive on its own. And that's our, that's the current phase we're in right now. Yeah, I think that it's, it's kind of that um, you're looking to hire before you need to. Um, to try and find the right people. Right. And and then it's a cost. And and you, you, you normally go, you have to, yeah, you, you, you invest a hell of a lot and you go backwards in terms of profitability. 
with the hope of going forwards again. And, and that, those are the cycles. It's quite interesting watching the EBITDA numbers as a business goes through. You get, you get nice EBITDA and then you read about, hold on a minute, we've reached the threshold that this business can go, then you invest again. The EBITDA drops, but the revenue goes up. And I think there are these cycles in business. So we're on the next, we're, we're in that next investment phase. And the revenues are up, but the EBITDA has taken a bit of a hit. And then you, you work it back again. That's the hope. Yeah. Mm. Paul, I'm just interested, uh, you know, as you were going through lot, a lot of gr growth in the last couple of years, mm. did you uh, get a lot of feedback from your clients? Um, and, in, and if so, how has that sort of influenced your business and, and your product roadmap with, with respect to the types of features that you've released? Yeah. Uh, Miles, and I, I, I think... I think we didn't do it formally enough before. So we always, I, I spent a great deal of time, I'm sure you guys are the same, talking to your customers. But I never did it in a, in a formal way. I did it in an informal way, just understanding their market challenges, understanding um, their pain points, understanding, uh, understanding their sales process, their leads, their stock challenges. But just through conversation, it wasn't structured. And, and then sort of, I think subconsciously, I was making mental notes as to how the product roadmap should, how the product should develop or what the product roadmap should be. But it was, mm. and if I, I'd be lying if I said it was anything other than gut fill for a lot of the product development. And, but I think, thankfully, the gut worked quite well in most cases and uh, it took us on the right path. But I think the next step of our evolution, which is where I've said we're becoming more formal and we've got more management, that we're on a, we're on, we're now on a, we're, we're, we're actually trying to get into the financial services sector and we, we need to speak to um, IFAs. And so what we're, we're doing this time round is that we're actually going to try and recruit a panel of experts from the IFA community and we're going to use their expertise to help shape the product roadmap. So we're becoming, you become more formal as you get bigger and you've got more people and you've got lots more roles and you've got this, that and the other, the processes get more formal and that's how we're addressing it now um, uh, in, in terms of our product development. So put a panel of experts together, use their, like do it as a focus group, give them the, give them the product for free so that they can play with it and they can keep it in perpetuity for free as a, as a quid quo pro and and then use their and use them as influencers to try and talk to their peers and their and 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 their, their industry peers to so we can uh, you can go back to our missionary sale they'll do our missionary selling for us mm. and then we yeah. follow up you know <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's so exciting to hear that because you know we just in our sort of service offering, we do loads of analytics audits and trying to understand what's happening in the back end. But unless you have that qualitative data from customer feedback, you know, you're kind of shooting in the dark and making so many assumptions. And, you know, the exciting thing is, uh, you know, quite often before we run full public tests, we're running user protocol tests on just a small sample size that it might not actually be the ideal user. But you know, just like you saying, you, you're onboarding these uh, IFAs to test out the product and see whether it's right for them. And there's so many learnings from someone actually physically 
using it versus speaking to someone and going, yes, I'd buy it and I'd spend, you know, a hundred dollars a month on it versus them actually doing it. Um, You know, now we, we kind of 12 and a, 12 and a bit years down. Um, How, just to end off here, how has your mindset changed? Um, You spoke about, you know, your initial company, uh, the struggle of two years and then, you know, big learnings to build this company, but, you know, you still have that um, somewhat blind confidence going into building another company and going, well, I have the self-belief, I'm going to do it. How has that sort of mindset changed to where you are today and, you know, how you approach the company? Um, I, I, I think, I think uh, founders are really important in a business. They set the, the values, the tone, they set the, um, they bring in the original clients. They set the relation. So I, I, what, what, um, it's a funny way to start the answer, but I think that for me, what I've learned is that you've got to create, you've got to keep the identity in the business as the business evolves. If the business becomes too sort of corporate, and if the business becomes too sort of formulaic and MBA. You lose the original, uh, I don't know, ingredients, fill. Um, I, I can't really phrase it properly, but you, the, 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 the essence of the business changes. So for me, I try and all those things that I tried to do when I first started, I still try and do today. So in other words, you, you have to be humble. You have to, you have to still pick up the phone. You have to lead from the front. You have to talk to your customers at all time. You, you have to set the right tone for everybody to follow. And I think that the successful businesses are those that maintain that from, the, from their inception to, to, to their current day situation. And that's what I've tried to do. And that's kind of been my learning. I don't know if that answers the question as, as, you, as, you, as you asked it. But that's for me. I don't. I don't know if that's uh, clear. But that's what. That's my general feeling is that you mustn't lose the essence of a business from what you started to what it is today. And I think it's so. I. You know uh, what comes to mind, and maybe again, I don't know if it fits to, to what the question was. But amount of big, big companies that buy businesses that were founder led, and then the founder gets a lock in on the business. You know, like for the earn out. Yeah, and then the founder leaves, and then that business completely changes because that founder's left, and and that doesn't thrive like it did before. And people don't really understand why doesn't it thrive because they're all the same people there, bar the founder, and all the same clients are there. Because that founder, I think, brings an essence, and and I think it's really important that everybody in the business understands what that essence is and tries to live that that those values in the, in their business. I, I hope that answers it. Cam, is that kind of yeah, yeah. completely? I, I think it's um, you know, not the greatest reference, but like a Steve Jobs Apple scenario of you know leaving leaving the company and you know that sort of two years the company takes a big dip and no one really you can't justify it with uh, you know sales reporting or any revenue figures. There's just that underlying figure that's you know pushing the company in the right direction. Right. Um, Paul, this has been amazing to have you in studio. Um, we really appreciated this, and you know the the story. Um, I think the beginning is is always tough for everyone, 
Um, and, you know, keeping those learnings and staying humble over time is, you know, an amazing feat in itself. And, you know, I think all the listeners um, tuning in today are, are really going to respect and, you know, take a lot of learnings from what you've shared. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Good luck yeah, with your business. Time, Paul. Thanks yeah, so, much. so much. All right. Cheers, guys. It's uh, Paul Devine from Logimeter. Cool. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he's just such a resilient guy. Uh, he obviously uh, also really appreciated his honesty. He went through uh, some really tough times when he was starting out, and he recognized that he actually just needs to find the right people, put them in the right position, lean on those people uh, for the growth of the business, and just stick through it from there. So really respectable way of uh, doing things and kind of just dog with the bone, uh, going for it until until it works. Yeah, I mean, it's like the the absolute uh, textbook way of testing. You know, he went into this big ego, loads of cash being blown, working out that it's the wrong direction, then testing market fit, then testing product fit, then testing growth fit, and then suddenly everything just turns into an amazing product and business. So, yeah, very, very humbling to hear this story. For sure. That's uh, Paul Devine, uh, founder and CEO of the call tracking software, Logimeter. Uh, we'll catch you guys next week for another episode of My Product Tested. Cheers for now.